You want to come with me? You want to go this way? Yeah? All right, there we go. I didn't say anything important yet, don't worry. (laughs) Friends, we want God to shine light on our minds, don't we? And we want God to illumine our hearts through his word. That's why you invite someone up here every Sunday, is it not? It's not just a habit, a mere routine, is it? We approach the word every week so that every dark place in us would be transformed by the glorious presence of Jesus, and that we would truly become people who live like Jesus in the kingdom of God. So to this end, let us pray for illumination. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty, quiet within us every voice but your own, speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit we may receive grace to show Christ's love in lives of service. Amen. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, recorded in Luke 19, starting with verse 28, reading from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus said this, that is a parable about faithful service to a king, Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, And he gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there. When you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as he had said. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, its master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things they had seen. They said, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, If only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace, but now they are hidden from you. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you, encircle you, and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you, because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. This is the word of the Lord.
Jesus is on the road again. He left Galilee, recorded back in chapter 9 of Luke, and has traveled 100 miles south to Jerusalem. Now he is on the last leg of his journey. He has just arrived on the Mount of Olives, and he singles out two unnamed disciples and gives them a task. Now, usually Luke is name-dropping left and right, but here they are unnamed, which has the effect of this. It has the effect of inviting you and me into the drama. So imagine, would you, your name, what is your name? Your name as one of the two unnamed disciples. Phil, Jackie, Jake, Gary, go into the village. Find a colt, one that has never been ridden, untie it, and bring it here. You receive these instructions after just having made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, along with many of your fellow Jews, and you're on tiptoe expectation. Now, since there is no I-65 south from Galilee to Jerusalem, the trip has taken you much longer than an hour and a half. A hundred miles by foot is a quite different kind of trip. Now, along the road, you've had plenty of time to think and to wonder with others, what is the master going to do next? What does he have in store at Jerusalem? Now that he's in God's city, what mighty deeds might he perform? Certainly, he saved his best show for last. The grand finale of all miracles. Oh, I can't wait to see what Jesus does in Jerusalem. And finally, with that excitement... You arrive on the Mount of Olives, just a half a mile, just a half a mile east of the city of Jerusalem. Now, the city at this point is in clear view, 99 and a half miles complete, half a mile to go. It's the last lap after walking four marathons. And the anticipation is mystifying, like a father in the last hour awaiting for the birth of his child. That's the sort of anticipation you're experiencing. Now let's step out of the story for a minute and listen to how scholar N.T. Wright describes this road to Jerusalem. The way to Jerusalem, he says, is paved with great expectations. Jerusalem, after all, is the city of the great king, the joy of the whole earth. It is Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. It is the place where the living God has chosen to put his name. Zion is my dwelling, my abode for all generations, says the Lord. It is the city where David built his own house and then planned God's house. Do you remember? It is the same city toward which Daniel in Babylon kept his window open in prayer, even at the risk of his life. Abraham passed by here on his first journey into the land of promise. According to legend, Zion is the mountain where Abraham took Isaac to offer him in sacrifice. In other legends, it is the place where Adam and Eve themselves were buried. It is the city of dreams, the holy city, the ultimate place of pilgrimage. It was and is a city of breathtaking beauty, high up in the Judean mountains, and encompassing in itself steep hills and deep gullies with stunning views and gorgeous buildings. Have you seen a place like this? It's honeycombed with twisting alleyways, shafts of sunlight on beautiful courtyards. It's full of smells of spices and olives, fresh bread, 
and sweet wine, and of the sounds of many languages, many voices raised in prayer. Friends, this is the city. On the heels of this city, you can see it in plain view. And then you hear his voice, clear as crystal, addressing you by name. Jesus is calling you, yes, you, to play a part in the mission he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Tim, go into the village over there, find a colt, untie it, and bring it here. Now, what in the world is Jesus up to? (laughs) As a lifelong Jew, you have been taught that there are two good reasons to go to Jerusalem. Number one, you went there to enthrone the king. Number two, you went there to meet God. Now, for the last 99 and a half miles, you thought you were going there for the second reason. You were going there to meet God. And you were following Jesus there because you believed him to be God's prophet. Perhaps he was even the one. Perhaps Jesus was the one foretold, the one who would redeem Israel, the Messiah. So for 99 and a half miles, you were headed to Jerusalem to meet God, assuming Jesus would serve as worship leader once you got there. Now, you were unsure how it would all play out with those in charge of the temple, and that added to the adrenaline rush. It was no secret that what shall we say? Jesus saw things differently than the religious establishment. So now, after traveling by foot for 99 and a half miles, Jesus asks you to find a colt upon which he would ride for his last stretch of the journey. And you have a feeling it's not because his legs are tired. What in the world is Jesus up to? Why is he looking for a ride to complete the trip to the great city? Then you, remember, then you remember, imagine this, then you remember that class in Shabbat school on the prophet Zechariah. You don't really remember much of the content that was taught. That's just the nature of our memories, right? But what you do remember is an image, an image that was so striking to you at the time that upon hearing Jesus' instructions, the image comes back to you. It's the image of a humble donkey and on its back, A king. Zechariah 9 is the verse. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. Donkeys are no animals for kings. That's why the image grooved its way into your memory. It's why the image returns to you now, though you first learned it so long ago. Jesus gives you a job to do, and the image comes back. Go into the village over there, untie a colt, find a colt, untie it, and bring it here. Could it be? (laughs) What in the world is Jesus up to? Could it be that Jesus is at last becoming king? Is Is he staging a coup? Will he at last overthrow the corrupt politicians of Rome and the greedy temple priests and make himself king by force? But then, why, why a young donkey and not a proud stallion? What in the world is Jesus up to? You can't stop thinking about it. So, 
You go to the village with your friend following Jesus' instructions, and you're unsure as to whether you're colluding with a dangerous revolutionary or not. Are the Romans going to find out what you're doing for this man? You go ahead with it anyways because the power of this prophet is unprecedented. He makes the blind see and the dead rise. You've seen it for yourself. So you go there with your friend and you find everything just as Jesus had said. And you look around once you're there and you're a bit nervous at the thought of taking a stranger's animal. This is his property, his means of transportation. But you see the animal Jesus was talking about and not seeing anyone around, you take the rope in your hands and you start untying. The owners show up, awkward. Hey, are you untying the colt? They ask. Remembering Jesus' instructions, your friend pipes up, its master needs it. To your astonishment, that does the trick. And off you go back to the Mount of Olives. And when you get to Jesus, the real owner of all things, you take off your jacket and you place it on the animal and you lift Jesus up onto it. Jesus rides the meek donkey for a half mile into the city. His feet, imagine, dangling over this short, humble animal, barely above the dusty ground. The crowd of disciples soon pick up on the symbolism. They soon pick up on what's happening. They remember the same image that was grooved into your memory, the image from Zechariah of a, humble, of a king on a humble donkey. And so, one by one, they began spreading their clothes on the road along with palm branches, unrolling the red carpet of honor. And that's your light bulb moment. That's the, the circuit of your understanding is now complete. Now you know why Jesus sent you to get the donkey. Now you know why you truly made the 100-mile trip. You aren't just here in Jerusalem to meet God. You're here to enthrone the king. Light bulbs turn on in other people's minds, too. One chimes out a verse from Psalm 118. Ana Adonai, Hosanna, Ana Adonai. And a chant begins, and you add your voice to it. Ana Adonai, Hosanna, Ana Adonai. Lord, please save us. Lord, please save us. Now, as the half-mile procession into Jerusalem continues, another chant bubbles up. And this time it starts among the shepherds of the group. The elder shepherds recall the words of the angelic choir they heard so long ago at the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in heaven, they, sh they chant, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. And before you know it, the entire crowd is chanting together with one accord, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. The thrill of the moment you cannot put into words. The joy you experience is like the joy of a mother seeing her firstborn for the very first time. The sheer volume of all the chanting all around you is like the sound of many waterfalls. And everyone praised the God of Israel on account of all the mighty things they had seen in Jesus. But not everyone joins the choir There is a handful of brave Jews who dared to oppose the crowd. 
They are from the strict religious group called the Pharisees, and they had gotten into it with Jesus before. This devoted religious group believes God's salvation will come only after, only after everyone gets their act together. They think of God like a stern man whose favor must be won over by a long string of obedient acts. To them, God is an eternal scrutinizer. After all, the reason Israel went into exile in the first place was because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. That's why God frowned upon the nation back then, and that's why they suppose God is frowning, not, frowning right now. And so they make it, the Pharisees, they make it their mission to turn God's frown back into a smile by being really good people. That's what the Pharisees were all about, being really obedient religious people. They keep track of everything. They try hard to ensure they break not even one law of Moses. Rule-keeping was the way to salvation. Being a really good religious person was the way to win God's favor. It's the way to win their nation back, they suppose, and it's up to them and their obedience to make it happen. And what's more, and this is why they don't like Jesus, what's more, whenever anyone else seems out of line, they count it their job to rebuke them and call them back to strict obedience. That's why the Pharisees refuse to join the choir. When they hear you, along with the rest of the crowd, hailing as king a man whom they consider a law-breaking false prophet, they feel nothing but anger and contempt. Certainly, they think, this is only making God more and more angry. And so their anger feels to them justified. It is a righteous anger in their view, because they are taking up God's judgment into their own hands, and they will stop at nothing. So there you are, watching as some of the Pharisees stomp over to Jesus in a fit of rage. Teacher, they shout, their voices filled with anger and contempt, Scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. If but everyone could have heard Jesus' response. I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. So can you see it? Can you see the events that trans- transpired on Palm Sunday? Can you see yourself as a character in the drama of Holy Week? Can you feel the adrenaline there must have been at that moment? The expectation, the hope stirred up by Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Are you asking the same question the disciples must have been asking? What great miracle has Jesus stored up for this grand finale as he rightfully assumes the role of king in Jerusalem. Now for the rest of the story, you have to come back later this week. We have the opportunity to enter the drama of these final days we call holy beginning on Thursday, and I invite you to join me there. But for now, I want to build a more firm bridge between the events of Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago and the celebration of Palm Sunday, 2017. And I want to build this bridge by asking a question, a question that presents itself, I think, to us naturally after entering the story. Here's the question. 
who do you want as your king? Who do you want as your king? There are at least three possible answers. And if, you, if I manage to, to lose you, I invite you to check back in at this point. Who do you want as your king? Three possible answers. The first one I'll mention is the most prevalent, I think. I believe most people want the self to be king of their lives. I want me to be king, we say. The natural disposition of the human heart is to want myself to be king. We want to be king of our own little kingdom. And that kingdom is called my life. My life is my kingdom, and I assert myself as its rightful king. After all, it's my life. We want to do with our lives what we want to do with our lives. So you don't tell me how to live my life. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever thought that way before? Now, into this common way of thinking, Jesus could not disagree anymore. All who want to save their lives, Jesus says, will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will save them. It's this common way of thinking and behaving that explains why anger is such a problem in our world. Where does anger come from? Have you ever thought about that? I think anger arises within us when we don't get our way. When someone else or something else breaks the laws we've set up in our own little kingdom, we get angry. Anger arises whenever other people do things that rub against the way we wanted them done. When others are at cross-purposes with the purposes of our kingdom, anger is the emotion we experience. It's no accident that the first vice Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount is what? Anger. In his brilliance, Jesus knows that anger gets at the heart of the matter. We want to be king in our own little kingdoms. And when we don't get our way, we get angry. Friends, unless we learn to submit ourselves to another king, in which case it doesn't matter if we get what we want because we want what this king wants. Unless we do this, we will never be able to control our anger when people cross us. So we do whatever we can to get our way. That's how we obey the king of self. Now, here's the, the, the surprising thing. We are surprisingly resilient in our resolve to play the king. Despite a few mishaps, despite those who cross us, despite the negative emotion of anger, which we don't really like, we generally feel, despite all of this, quite confident in our own ability to construct a good life for ourselves, to to make decisions for ourselves on how we want to live, and we think that's going to give us a good life. That's the natural disposition of the human heart. It's to remain content, serving as our own king and our own little kingdoms. Now, because of such resilience, because of such strong fortifications and towers we've built around our kingdom, it often takes suffering to break through our defenses. This is a sad but time-tested reality, is it not? That unless we experience suffering, the lie will never be exposed that we've told ourselves, the lie that we make mighty fine kings. Often people 
often people don't find another king for themselves until they realize that they are not actually doing a very good job at running their kingdom. You see, we lack motivation to do things differently until our decisions as king have brought upon us and others terrible pain. Instead of creating a good life under the kingdom of self, we end up ruining ourselves. Sadly, but usually, it takes some sort of suffering, some deep hurt, to prompt us to hand over the keys to another. And this often occurs after we've already done a number on our broken lives and on the relationships with others. Now, the events of Palm Sunday direct this question, then, towards the human heart with its disposition to exalt itself. Who do you want as your king? There is a second king out there, and we see him in our scripture text. It's the king named religion. The Pharisees are our example here. They are in wonderful submission to the king called religion. And there are a few of us who like to enthrone religion as king of our lives. Like the Pharisees, we try to follow all the religious rules, and that's how we suppose we'll achieve the good life. That's how we'll get salvation. That's what makes for a good kingdom. That's what will make us happy. Or at least that's what will keep the king happy. Rule-keeping is what this king called religion requires, and it generally creates legalistic, self-righteous, and again, angry people. Do you know any angry Christians? But truth is, this is only a variation of the kingdom of self. For it isn't the true God who has set up a system of rule-keeping as a way of winning over his favor. It's us. It's God cast in our own image. It's us wanting to perform in order to receive a verdict. But friends, that's not the gospel. God is already smiling down upon us. That's his grace. We are his creatures. He's our father. and He loves us. But the kingdom of religion offers another way. It allows the self to take charge. And if we live in this kingdom, we're actually still the ones in charge. And it will ruin us. In this way of thinking, we're still the ones with the ability to earn a verdict based on our performance. We're still the ones managing our own lives. We're still the ones making up the rules. But in this variation, we credit the rules to the one we call God and tradition. For this reason, Jesus tells the parable immediately preceding the passage we read today. I encourage you to read it later. It, it sheds a whole lot of light on the, the Pharisees and, and, their, and Jesus' response to them on Palm Sunday. Now, verse 14, chapter 19, that's, that's where the zinger of the parable is at. And it expresses the attitude of the Pharisees toward Jesus. Listen to this. The king's citizens hated the king. So they sent a representative after him who said, we don't want this man to be our king. 
That's the attitude of the Pharisees toward Jesus. We don't want this man to be our king because they already had a king named religion, named tradition. And as we'll soon see, they will stop at nothing to ensure Jesus doesn't get in their way. So again, the events of Palm Sunday direct this question toward the law-abiding hearts of religious people. Who do you want as your king? But the good news of Palm Sunday is that there's a third king. There is a third king who ushers in an entirely different sort of kingdom. On the day of this king's birth, an angel an angelic choir is necessary to properly announce the gospel of his kingdom. The gospel of Christianity, what we call the gospel properly understood, is the really good news of Jesus becoming king. Look, I bring gospel to you, declares the angel over the king in the manger. Wonderful, joyous news for all people. Not just to the lovers of self, but yes, even to them, not just to religious folk, but yes, even to them, the gospel of Jesus' kingdom is for all people. Your your Savior is born today in David's city, the angel announces. He is Christ the Lord. And then the glory of such news beckons a great assembly of the heavenly forces, and they're with the angel praising God, and they say, see if this sounds familiar, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Glory in heaven and on earth, peace. On the real lives we live, peace. On the day-to-day existence of human beings, peace. On earth, peace among those whom he favors. Friends, peace has come upon the earth, and his name is Jesus. The kingdom of God has come upon the earth, and the name of its king is Jesus. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in our real lives, as it is in heaven. Friends, Jesus is a far better king than you and I could ever be. Amen? And the range of his kingdom far exceeds the tiny little lives we try to construct, yeah? The purpose of his kingdom is far better than our purposes to advance our reputation and to advance the good that we think is good. The purposes of Jesus' kingdom are peace. And it's not just some inner tranquility. The word here harkens back to shalom, that thick word in Hebrew. Peace, justice, God's perfect intentions for human flourishing, including especially intimacy between God and humanity. God's purpose, the purpose of the kingdom is to extend shalom throughout every land and people group and into every human heart. This is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and it's intended for all people. And we see it clearly on Palm Sunday as we shout hosannas to the king. But to live in his kingdom and to receive his benefits, 
we must lose our lives. We must cut our ties with our former king and get on our knees, submitting ourselves to the world's only true and just king, Jesus our Savior. And if you've been following Jesus for some time, you already know this is an ongoing process, is it not? For the kingdom of self and the kingdom of religion try to assert themselves over and over again. So let us once more this holy week lose our lives, cut our ties with these kings, and submit to King Jesus. Let us not be like the city over which Jesus wept, saying, If only you knew on this day all the things that lead to peace. Instead, let us recognize the time of the gracious visit from God. Friends, it's the visit of God that makes for peace in our lives. That's how we deal with anger, the visitation of God into our hearts. And that time is now. Today is the day of salvation. We live in the age of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ given to the church. The time is now. Today, we ought to join the whole crowd of Jesus' disciples making their way to the cross, rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty things we've seen in Jesus. Friends, that's what Palm Sunday is all about. But if I were you, I would keep following this Jesus as he makes his way deeper into the heart of Jerusalem. For it's true, he really has saved his best miracle for last, but it's nothing like you expect. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, our King, Hosanna, save us now. Lord, we're tired of being our own kings. We're tired of trying to earn what you've already given to us. And so we hand over the keys of our kingdom to you. Jesus, we exalt you and we humble ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would now feed us at the feast of your kingdom with your grace and your mercy revealed in the breaking of the bread. In your name we pray. Amen.